0: This is, this is really exciting. Um, it's, uh, it's been wonderful to see a lot of the students that were in our little classroom all, look at you, piled up in a row. Uh, it's really wonderful to see you guys here. And to actually see you, I've always wondered what what, what, what's in the water here that brings such wonderful students to Rome. And now I can see the water and the campus and the faculty, and I'm, I'm very, very, very happy. To, uh, to be part of this magnificent team. And as a result, since you guys are, a lot of you are my, my, my former students, I, I'm gonna start with a little um, admission about the church I'm gonna talk about tonight, which is um, when I first started doing tours and visits, my least favorite church to visit was St. John Lateran. If we could maybe not get that part on camera, that would be good. And uh, <laughs> that church, that church for me, it was the night before I would have to drag out the guidebook and basically memorize the entire guidebook because to me there was no there's no story. It's not like St. Peter's. I mean, St. Peter's it's kind of the total game face of the Catholic Church, right? You know, like it's two thousand years, no sweat. Um, St. John Lateran with its crazy mix mishmash of decoration. This is from here. This is from here. I always found it terribly, terribly difficult to understand, and yet somehow in the midst of uh, the years and years and years of taking lots of different people around and I don't, I very, I have to say the Christendom students are something of an anomaly in my life. Students who believe in God and the sacraments, students who are well read, who are interested, who ask important questions. Um, I'm kind of accustomed to that well, aren't all all religions the same? And this this talk actually comes out of the day I realized that St. John Lateran is the church that explains to us No, not all religions are the same. And what's even more, what makes this church so special, so now it's the one I look forward to on the itinerary, so this just lets you know every now and then you hit a class you don't like, maybe mine, and eventually muscle through, get past the gag reflex, and a whole world of possibilities (laughs) open. If I may quote Ratatouille. And... I didn't want to let you down. Life's not complete without a Pixar reference, is it? All right, so when the thing about St. John Lateran, the thing about talking about these early Christian basilicas is that we can start with words of jubilation. It's a, it's a structure, it's a building, it's a world that talks about happiness, it talks about gratitude. It's a very, very exciting language that we see in, the, in that of early Christian churches. So when Eusebius, Bishop of Caesarea, he writes in the concluding book of his ecclesiastical histories, all the things that have happened, he says, justly indeed shall we add a complete discourse on the renovation of churches, yielding to the spirit of God, inviting us in the following manner. Sing to the Lord a new song. He has done wonderful works. And so that is the beginning of our story this evening. Eusebius was witness to the most dire of persecutions, that of Diocletian and Galerius, which killed about 3,500 Christians. This is the conservative estimate between 301 and 305. They included St. Sebastian, St. Agnes, St. Gennaro, just keep going, but he lived long enough. Eusebius lived long enough to see the reversal of the edicts of persecution, the legalization of the Christian religion, and the construction of the first churches. So Eusebius's words, they resonate with joy and wonder, the same wide-eyed, bubbling amazement of one who's been miraculously cured. And Constantine's biographer marveled that after the dreadful spectacle of the sufferings of the martyr, we have been privileged to see and celebrate such things that many of the martyrs before us craved to see and did not. And so I put up this painting I happen to really love. I have a kind of a crazed passion for Jerome as a painter. And he does a lot of these really, I mean, obviously, these are 19th century paintings. But these are paintings that evoke that spirit of martyrdom, that spirit of these, this, this sort of brave stance of the martyrs at their last prayer, the theater filled with the Romans who are waiting to see these people die. And just imagining for a second, what it was like to live through that period, where from 301 and 305, basically it's a question of your next door neighbor one day, um, family members you hear about being taken the next day, a shop is closed, a business is closed, and you know it's only a matter of time until it gets to you. And then the next thing you know, you have an emperor who comes along and not only uh, ends the persecution, only the persecution's over, but you now have an emperor who is willing to legalize the church and to pay for its early Christian churches. So it is through the eyes of Eusebius and the newly legalized Christian community in Rome that I am proposing to look at the first spaces of Christian worship. And I, and I want to draw out something very important, which is that unique element to early Christian churches. There is an element to these churches where the Christians are expressing their uniqueness. And in 2017, I was, you guys all know, all my class, you all know I had drop the pretense from every now and then and say, okay, listen, we're talking about 2,000 years ago, but really we're talking about right now. So we're having a drop the pretense moment. I mean, it's a way of understanding that there's this, there's this, there's an incredible uniqueness about Christianity, which we knew from the very beginning when we first first got to make our mark in the architectural fabric of the city of Rome. So um, Constantine entered Rome, whoops, sorry, I'm getting this backwards. Constantine entered Rome in triumph. He entered after his defeat of Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge, and on October 28th of 312, he would have come through the Porta Flaminia. It didn't look like this. This has been redone by Bernini, but pazienza. Uh, he entered the northern gate, which is closest to the bridge, and he would have passed along the Via Lata. And the Via Lata, oops, the Via Lata, let's see, there you go, the Via Lata, thank you, thank you, that's, that's me doing PowerPoint, and <laughs> everything... <laughs> You know, you know, I like to take a bow when I finally get an animation going. Um, the, um, he would pass along. That's the, that's the main street. You guys know it today is Via del Corso. It goes straight down, and that circle is where the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus would have been. Um, the Via Lata bore the marks of triumph of the 50-odd Caesars that had come before Constantine. So from Augustus to Maxentius, they had left. 22 equestrian statues, 36 triumphal arches, two triumphal columns, and a partridge in a pear tree. No, and, an, <laughs> and an endless array of victor, victory temples stretching from the Campus, campus Martius to the Forum Imperiali. Now, Constantine's victory was no ordinary one. It was attributed to a new god. And so Constantine's victory is both old in the tradition of Rome, and it's new. He follows antique customs. He he decided to dedicate a new temple to the god who had assured his victory. But this time, he did not dedicate the temple to Mars or Jupiter or the like. He dedicated it to the Christian god Christ the Savior, whose cross seen in a vision had led the emperor to victory at his battle at the Milvian Bridge. Constantine legalized the oft-persecuted religion, bestowed great endowments on the cult. No wonder the jubilation can be heard from among the Christians from Lactantius to Eusebius. After 250 years of intermittent persecution, the Christians would be able to state their creed and bear witness to their god and their joy in architecture. In Rome, for all of you who have been there, the most visible sign of perpetuity throughout the Mediterranean. It's how we make our mark in the Mediterranean. You want to be remembered, build to be remembered. So here are the Christians with... Ugh, here are the... So here... Right, me, technology, not a happy thing. The, um, so here are the Christians, finally you know, able to gather together and they're able to start thinking about what they're going to do. And they'd had centuries to think about this. I mean, honestly, the Christians for centuries have had possibilities of thinking, gosh, if I were legal and I could build a church, what would it look like? They had gathered in house churches all over the empire, um, accommodating a Roman domus, a Roman house or a private home or sometimes an apartment building to their needs. And you can see here the wonderful um, example of Dura Europis, where you see the, the 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 different spaces. There were 25 house churches Dotted around the city of Rome, and they kind of got lost. They were easily hidden amid the 44,000 insulae or apartment buildings that were in Rome in the in the fourth century. They were unobtrusive, but nonetheless, they managed to serve the Christian community for generations. they gathered them for baptism and catechesis and in the dining room the Oikos they were able to gather for the common meal. And so you can see uh, how they you can sort of see this arrangement of a house where for example they broke through on one wall in order to be able to create a large space for the a large space for their dining room for the Eucharist and then they have a teaching room and then they had a little room of the baths which was trans, trans, transformed into a kind of baptistry. Um, the largest and most, most important space of course, is going to be liturgical. Um, the new churches would seek with the new churches that they would build under Constantine would still try to be homes, houses, but they would try to gather, more people under one roof, all brothers and sisters in Christ, and they would need more space. And they would also need a more orderly organization of worship. So for the 275 years of their existence, the Christians had been around temples. Rome was bursting at the seams with temples, dedicated to everything from Jupiter Optimus Maximus, which is the temple you see here, Rome's supreme deity, and to the latest emperor, who had been duly apotheosized apotheosized into a god. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians have been killed for refusing to sacrifice at these temples. And after 3,000 years of defying Roman deities, they would certainly certainly design their houses of worship to distinguish them from those of the false gods. So the the Roman temple, reveals, you guys all remember the Roman temple class, Roman temples reveal the fundamental tenets of the Roman religion. They are first and foremost raised high upon a podium. So you'll see the fact that they're lifted way up off the ground. The fundamental message of the, of the podium is the gods don't really like you and they don't want to live on the same floor as you. Um, in the case of Jupiter who really doesn't like you, he lives on the top of a hill and then on top of a podium. So the, 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 the pagan temples make a point of dwarfing the, the following of the gone. Then, when you look beyond it, you see the cella. (laughs) I feel like pulling a pop quiz out right now, but I won't. Um, (laughs) The cella from which we get our word "cell" or "cellar." Um, the word "the cello," the internal space, was enclosed and windowless, and it was contained the statue of the god and the remains of the offerings. As you know, or as you may or may not know, few people were allowed into the dwelling of the god. So going into that space of the cello was somewhat rare. Um, you went in if you were a priest bringing the remnants of the remnants of the sacrifice. But essentially, I find that the internal cell of a pagan deity is very similar to the room of an adolescent. It's dark, they like to stay in the dark with the remains of old pizza boxes. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, the altar stood on an enclosure, or stood on the stairs or an enclosure below for the sacrifice which takes place sub divos. So basically, under the gods. The gods are here. The sacrifice is happening here. The twain do not meet. So what I'm trying to illustrate for you, what I'm trying for those of you who haven't stood there in the the forum with me talking about it, but what I'm trying to illustrate to you is that the Roman temples are are, are creating a distance between men and gods. The gods are in the heaven, the men are down on earth, and you send up enough smoldering pig fat to keep them away from you. And so it is a very, very, very clear and distinct difference. the temple exteriors, however, were lavishly decorated. They were the most exotic marbles that were looted from Rome's many conquests. The ashlar masonry, the, the blocks of marble placed together, it's a building technique of the gods. It gives stability and majesty to the structures. The bronze reliefs grace the pediments, the ornate friezes, the metopes articulated the elegant and proportionate architecture. The buildings were glamorous. They were awe-inspiring on the outside, and yet they were empty and rancid on the inside. And that is perhaps the best architectural illustration of what was a fatally flawed religion. So the Christians would avoid practically every aspect of the Roman temple except, except its message of victory. When the time came, they would reinterpret both beauty and triumph in their own unique fashion. So, The next type of building we run into is the Mithraeum. And again, um, my former students all know there's nothing I love more than making fun of Mithras. Um, There was another. there is the uh, the Mithraeum was the shrine dedicated to the Persian god Mithras, who sacrificed a primogenital bull um, and therefore brought forth good things of the world. There are, in the ex-Roman empire, there have been four hundred and twenty. Excavated mithraeum. That is a lot of information about the space where the the followers of this cult worshipped. There are 420. There are 90 in the city of Rome. They were very frequent imperial topography. The Christians found their houses of worship often side by side with these crazy mithraea. The Santa Prisca up on the up on the Aventine Hill, right next door to a mithraeum. San Clemente, which many 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 of you know, right next door to a mithraeum. And so uh, the, the, the Christians actually are the be- one of the better sources for the Mithraic practices because the Mithraeans can't be bothered to write anything down. Um, the, um, the Mithraean was similar to a house church in that it was generally built inside a domus or an insula. However... Despite the legal status of Mithras, Mithras was never illegal in Rome, and on some occasions, the construction of these these, these cult cells were actually paid for by the government, so they're not hurting for money, they don't have to hide anything, but their their cells are very, very small. The largest in all of the 420 is in the Baths of Caracalla. It measured 75 feet long and 32 feet wide, which is the size of, it's my favorite fun fact, It's the size of San Carlino. San Carlino is the smallest church in Rome. It can fit inside one of the piers of St. Peter's, and that is the size of the largest Mithraeum ever found. It held 240 people, the Mithraeum of the Baths of Caracalla. Unlike Christianity, mithraism was an exclusive religion. It was prohibited to women to begin with. The spaces indicated levels attained in the cult, but there's no clear progression from one one space to the other. This This is the Mithraeum of Caracalla. The Christians will borrow nothing from these spaces. This is the kind of strange articulation of the spaces where you don't really understand where you are in Mitzrayism. Surprise, surprise. Um, it is useful for them to see modern history. So, so this is where I get to the point where you know, modern history um, likes to compare Christianity with Mithras. As a matter of fact, much of this talk comes out of being in San Clemente one day, just kind of minding my own business. And uh, and I hear this group come up next to me, and they're explaining, well, you know, Mithras and Jesus, they're basically the same thing. They all come from the same root. You see Mithras has seven sacraments, seven levels. Christianity has seven sacraments. It's basically all the same thing. Mithras sacrificed a bull, it's et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I just I started thinking, well, how can you say that in this building? This building tells you a, that The building tells you the exact opposite, which is where the core of this talk comes from, how the architecture in a world which speaks through architecture, Tells you what you need to know. So what is the big difference between the modifications? What is one of the biggest differences? One of the most telling differences is the modification a mithrin will make, the mithrins make to their spaces. When they take over a space, they vault the roof and they lower it. So if this roof were already this height, if you're mithrins, they'll drop the roof. They'll puncture little holes in the roof to create a kind of... um, Starry sky effects. So the idea is you have like almost like constellations in the heavens. Uh, the Mithrans look for darkness in their buildings. As a matter of fact, Tertullian who does not like them very much, calls their religious spaces strongholds of darkness. And this has been used, believe it or not, this is their big argument. You know, aha, Christianity is just another form of Mithraism. Aha, they say, Mithras was born in a cave. Jesus was born in a cave. They are obviously the same person. Um, Yes, Jesus was born in a cave. He did leave the cave. If my recollection is correct, and I realize we have some scripture scholars here, so I don't want to step on your turf, but I think they killed Jesus and put him in another cave, and he left again. So (laughs) my understanding from the New Testament is that Jesus doesn't really do caves. Um, However... This small exclusive space and the sacrifice of the bull instead of the self-sacrifice of Christ, the emphasis of darkness, the self-sacrifice of Christ, this emphasis on darkness was another indication of the incompatibility of the two religions. Now, we're going to get to the one building that the Christians know that's going to matter, and that is the synagogue. In, in Joseph Ratzinger's future Card- uh, Pope Benedict XVI, Uh, 1999 book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, he wrote about, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger then, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote about the spiritual ancestor of the Roman church as the Jewish synagogue. And he analyzed how the Christians' knowledge of and intimacy with the synagogue, especially in the apostolic era, would shape their ideas around architecture. Um, The temple had long been destroyed by the time of, by the time Constantine had legalized Christianity, but the synagogue flourished especially in Rome, where her Jewish community dated back, the Jewish community in Rome dated back to 161 BC. The synagogue was a regular and fixed place of assembly for the community. Unlike the Roman temples, it was a gravitational center for the community at large. The synagogue welcomed the congregation as a whole. The temple kept people at a distance. The synagogue does not entertain sacrifice and libation. It focuses on the presence of God through his word. But the Domus Ecclesia were their direct heirs, as seen by the parishes that will immediately grow around the first 25 Domus Ecclesia in Rome. But the Christians needed to adapt a synagogue structure in in order for their representation of Christ's sacrifice. So the physical form of of the synagogue was frequently quite different. Um, from that of the Christian church. Although there are only six remaining in the empire from the, from the apostolic age, the oldest one is in Delos, the synagogue of Capernaum from the second century, maybe excavated by Franciscan priests in 1968, um, had a monumental and decorated facade. So something that's a little bit closer to the temple idea that the exterior of the building does distinguish itself as a religious space within the, within the city. Um, it had uh, seats lining the walls for the gathering of the people together, and the floors were inlaid with mosaic niches where the Romans would have placed idols. So inside the solid walls where the Romans just put niches for idols, the the, 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 the Jewish synagogues put in windows so that they could have a play of light in the building. Prayer halls had one or 2 edicule eticule-shaped shrines for Torah scrolls. <clears throat> installed on both sides of the main entrance, and the elegant facade faced Jerusalem. Now, Ratzinger focused on three cardinal points of the synagogue. One, its seat of Moses, the shrine of the Torah, and the orientation towards Jerusalem. In the first... the the seat of Moses, generally placed by the entrance, there is the seat of God, where the rabbi makes present the word of God addressed to Israel. The The part is placed to look at the shrine of the Torah, representing the lost ark. Only the ark was allowed in the Holy of Holies and was like an empty throne, where God had once come down and where he would come again. So the congregation turns with the rabbi in expectation of God's return. The shrine, however, did carry something from the Ark, the living word of God in the mysterious presence, in, in the living word of God in its mysterious presence, and is thus singled out and specially decorated to distinguish its importance. And um, that will be in the Dura Europas, this sort of very, very interesting synagogue where you see the heavy decoration in fresco from 240 AD. Um, the orientation of the synagogue, however, is towards Jerusalem, and it takes... It takes the community out of itself and it directs it towards the greater community in Jerusalem. So the synagogue space collapses with that of the temple, however, is somewhat geographically oriented. Um, The presence of God, the expectation, and connection with the larger community are fundamentally present in early Christian churches, although the Christians must adapt the physical form of the building to be able to represent sacrifice. So after all that, What is it the Christians will end up building in Rome? So the Christians gather... They're, they're legalized. In 313, the Christians now have an opportunity to assert their identity. I must make a little um, parenthesis that it's important to realize Constantine was not in Rome in 313. Constantine was very rarely in Rome, and his plans were already fixed towards Constantinople. So something I'd like to kind of get rid of right away is the idea that Constantine was somehow micromanaging the construction of the basilicas. He left massive in endowments. A little bit later when we get to the things that he gave to St. John Lateran, it's it's, it's astonishing. He left amazing endowments for the Christians, but the Christians will be making their own decisions about what the building will look like. So this is not Constantine designing our buildings for us. Um, The the, the practical case for today is, uh, first of all, the characteristics that we're going to find in early Christian churches. These are the sort of of thematic. Uh, One of the things that makes them very unique and they're concerned about is rejoicing. Like you heard with Eusebius, sing to the Lord a new song, because he has done wondrous things. Uniqueness, which I cannot possibly stress enough, the Christians, the people can tell you that the Christians were all the same, and all the religions are the same. But the Christians know in three hundred that they're the only people who lose their jobs; they're the only ones who get you know publicly executed for believing what they believe. The Christians always knew they were unique. So this 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 concept that somehow Mithraism, the the religion of Isis, they're all the same monomyth. Christians don't fall for that one. Um, the um, the um, exegesis, this, this, this story, this great plan for salvation, they want that to come out in their, in their buildings. And, of course, evangelization, going forth and making disciples of all nations. They will be building in Rome. Rome, which the very first thing Rome did after it was founded was to found its religion. Jupiter and, and Vesta... They have been there for over a 1,000 years. The Romans make their statements through religious buildings. The stakes are high for the Christians. There is a lot to be said in this this construction. And anyway, um, this is so. St. John Lateran was was built. it It was actually dedicated on November 9th of 324. And it was consecrated as the first legally built Christian church in the world. And it was named the Church of Christ the Savior. It was built at the expense of the emperor this is the Cathedral of Rome. It is the showcase of Christianity to the world. And in this building we can see how Christians made their first architectural decoration of faith to the faith of the faith and their declaration of the nature of Christ. The placement, however, was not overly promising. You may see St. John Lateran there in the background, you know amid the shrubs. Uh, That would be the city wall in front of it. So Constantine legalized Christianity, and he was building churches, but only one of the six he built was within the city wall. What is more, he um, had to build it on property that belonged to his wife's family, so it was his own personal property, and and I think the the, the sweetest part is the part how it's right next to the walls. So to me the general message that the placement of St. John Lateran is being given, that Christians are being given by the city is, okay, uh, I guess we have to let you in now, but please stay in the foyer because we don't want you in the living room. And just as kind of a fun fact about the history of Rome, it will take 200 years for the Christians to get from St. John Lateran into the Forum because that's how deep the hostility is towards them. Um, As the... um, the, uh, the 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 just a, this it's um, kind of a cool representation of uh, the, what the church looked like in 1300. You can see it over um, you can see it over towards the side facing outwards. Um, the um, the the property it was almost not only the wife of Constantine but it came from the Praetorian Guard that had the bad taste to fight for Maxentius. The name of the Lateran comes from the previous owners, which is the Lateranensi, who were killed in the first century A.D. after plotting to kill Nero. We can only imagine what would have happened if they had succeeded. Um, the, um, the 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 uh, the the church today. The church today wears an imposing facade. This is always this is the hardest part of understanding this church because one of the very first things the Christians were interested in is what is your first impression of the church, and so you walk up to a to a facade that was built in 1730. It's by Galileo. It's by I'm sorry. It's by Alessandro Galilei, who is a um, uh, 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 is he's working in the 18th century. It kind of looks like the Trevi Fountain on steroids. Um, it was built for the Grand Tour. The visitors of the Grand Tour who would. Not have quite as much patience for the kind of, you know, cute, quaint, ancient, dusty old facade for them. The former facade of of St. John Lateran in the nineteenth century would have been simply another sort of antiquated vestige of a dying superstition. So the Christians rebuilt all of our facades um, in order to present a new face for the new generation of the Enlightenment. It was so successful; our our facades were so successful that the uh, Grand Tourists went home and designed all their bank buildings. Uh, to look like it. So I think we get an understanding of who their gods were. But at any rate, rate, my my point is this. This is not what the original facade looked like. So I need you to use your imagination and imagine it more like Santa Polinari in classe. This is a church that hasn't been altered. It's really remarkable in what good condition it's in. See the plain brick facade you've got there? That was the first impact of seeing a Christian church. You walk into the gate. The walls of the city by the Lateran, the first thing you see is you know, this big old brick building. It was really, you'd be like, that's a really funny place to put a warehouse. And then to find out that that was a religious space is kind of fascinating. It was very large, it was simple, and it was unlike the Roman temples with their lavish facades. If Augustus is boasting, I found Roma City of brick, I left Roma City of marble, then the Constantinian Basilica is to represent Jesus, who is the exact opposite of what the Romans are presenting. The Romans are all about men who become gods. The Christians are about God who became man, not someone who came to earth as a Roman emperor, as a glamorous movie star, as a sports star, but someone who is the lowly son of the carpenter who we are celebrating today, a man who was sturdy enough, who was strong enough to carry the cross to his own crucifixion after being beaten all night. That simple, humble exterior which the Christians intentionally put on the facade of St. John Lateran was so that people would realize right away that their god was not like the other gods. The exterior was very simple. The interior was amazing. Uh, The interior, this is just a little taste of what what it must have looked like. We have the interior of some Santa Polinari in classe with its spectacular mosaics. Um, the, uh, the, The decoration inside the Lateran was listed for us. We have a list of what Constantine gave to that building. Seven silver tables weighing 200 pounds each. Golden candelabra. Hanging chandeliers and gold and silver, inlaid marble, so the interior of the church was luminous, bright, glorious, magnificent. What a way of describing Jesus. Simple and humble on the outside to those who passed him on the street. Glorious and magnificent for those who recognize that they had before them God. Um, The the Christians also chose, when it was time to decide a structure, obviously they're not going to be taking the pagan temples. They're small, dark, and they have pagan god cooties. Um, The... um, The Mithraic temples are obviously not going to work. And uh, the synagogues need adjustment. The building that they found that was hands down the most successful is a basilica. It is the most religiously neutral building in the entire city of Rome. Now, the um, basilica was invented in Greece. It was called a royal walkway. It was meant to meet and greet a king designed for crowd control and security, which ironically was invented in the Mediterranean. The high... (laughs) Uh, I'll be back there in two days. Uh, the, high <laughs> the high-covered nave, flooded with light, brought subjects down to the ruler seated in an apse in an orderly way, and then funneled them out the sides. Um, with um, the, the Romans invaded Greece, um, and they exported the building, but they had a new use for it. They had a kingless republic, so that wasn't going to be useful. So the basilica made a great shopping mall. Um, and by by over the years, the emperors the emperors returned it to its regal use uh, by dint of housing the emperor, Um, but the Romans, the Christians in Rome, opted for the basilica, and they proceeded to transform it into what Eusebius will call the heavenly walkway, drawing on their experience of other buildings to make their great statement about their faith in Christ. Now basilicas can be expanded. That's one of the most attractive things for the Christians. Basilicas can be made larger and larger and larger. There's no end to how big you can make a shopping mall, apparently. Um, and the Basilica Ulpia that you're looking at here was 557 feet by 196 feet. The basilica, the, the Romans could turn it into shops or the space could be left open. And as you can see up above, the clear story guaranteed a very, very powerful play of light. Um, the Basilicas, however, the Roman basilicas are open-ended. They lack a certain sense of axiality as well as a proper sense of enclosure. So the Christians will begin with these modifications and they will transform the basilica into a Christian space. The size factor matters to the Christians a great deal. The Christian population by the middle of the third century was probably about 50,000 people in Rome. And unlike the pagan religion. And I repeat, unlike almost all the other pagan religions, Christianity was universal. It intended to invite Everyone into the Domus Dei. The earliest Christian basilicas, such as San Crisogono, we actually believe that San Crisogono might have been built right before the legalization of Christianity. The Christians are already messing around with this building in Trastevere. You can find it underneath the actual Basilica of Crisogono. They're already thinking in terms of building a basilica. And so this one, the San Crisogono Basilica, you can see the darker shaded one is next to the new basilica. They actually built it side by side. Um, the original, one 164 feet long. It's about the same size as San Clemente, for those of you who know it. That church could hold up to 1,400 people. So that's five times the capacity of the largest Mithraeum. The Romans, this, this idea of everybody welcome. The first thing they want is a building that can make sure nobody feels left out. The Roman worship subdivos. Emphasizes the distance of the gods. And for the Romans viewed, the Romans viewed, quote, humans as mortal gods, gods mortal humans, this is again from Spirit of the Liturgy, Christians, exactly the opposite. God become man to walk among men and share in their humanity. The church, as Christ, as the church, as Christ allowed all to gather together with God with no exclusion. They need big spaces little so the little remains of the 4th century St John Lateran um, it's, almost nothing is actually left, except for the floor plan. And this rather strange design here on the left hand side, if you see the dark parts that are reinforced, you see they're kind of dark elements that have been super reinforced. That's the part that was excavated during the excavations in the 1930s where they found the actual outline of the church. The One of the very few things that is still in the church today, St. John Lateran today from before, is the floor plan, the amount of actual covered space the Christians are building for size. So St. John Lateran was an enormous church. it had a three hundred foot nave. It was the it it was uh, it could hold about two hundred priests, and again, it was able to hold about a thousand faithful. Um, the um, the churches are described by Richard Krautheimer as one of my favorite um, archaeologists for this period or historians of this period. And he describes them as big old barns, which is um, not really that. Far off, in all honesty, the Christians also will alter the basilica to return to the axiality. There's an entrance door, and there's a point. Of, there's a point of destination. So instead of the Roman pagan basilicas, where you can come in any door, the same way a shopping mall wants you to have easy access to all the different stores, in the case of the um, in the case of Saint John Lateran, there is one entrance. There's a there's an entrance wall, and then you are dead. You are headed towards a space: the high central nave, the two lateral side aisles, but you're heading down definitely a very specific space. As a matter of fact, early church historian William MacDonald underscores that the desire and necessity to center focus and to celebrate architecturally a specific feature or space is an outstanding characteristic of Christian architecture. So the nave is what they called that space. That big open aisle down the center, the nave, the novice, the boat where everybody gets into the same boat. And once you get into the same boat, you definitely want to arrive at destination. So the beauty of the way these are organized is that you get, into the, you get into the church, you get into the boat with the others that you're there with today, that have been there in the past, that will be there in the future, and you're going someplace. You're looking for the place to put down anchor at safe harbor, which is one of the reasons why the anchor is one of the most common images in the early Christian church. Um, the, um, The haphazard division of the Basilica space in Rome was transformed into a lucid and orderly procession of spaces by the Christian basilica. Unlike Mithraic cults, where Pisces were grafted onto each other, the Christian space represents a progression. And the church looked to the east, as in the canticle of Zechariah, through the depths of his mercy in which he has visited us, arising from the east. This transformed the old synagogue's gaze towards Jerusalem, uh, out of geography, and into expectation of a new day with the Lord. And as a matter of fact, Eusebius draws this distinction when he says the glory of this latter house, the Christian churches, shall far exceed the former. Thus then, embracing a much wider space, he strengthened the outer enclosure with a wall to encompass the edifice, extending the vestibule towards the rays of the rising sun, the recollection of the former desolation and the present wonderful transformation. Now, the Christians also chose the basilica for the play of light. So the basilica has size, it has axiality, and also has a play of light. Distancing themselves further from the temples, Christians exploited the use of light in churches, particularly through the clear story. This is one of my favorite photos of St. John Lateran. It's the it's this 1564 ceiling, but if you see what I'm after, the very, very large windows that are flooding that center space with 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 light. And um, it uh, it becomes the, the there are 20 per side. Originally, there are fewer windows now. Originally, there were 20 windows per side in the Clara story. So the light, the, the, the nave would have been flooded with light, but the double side aisles on either Either side would have been in shadow. So when you came into the side of the church, you were drawn towards the light. The light became kind of like a force that made you want to get closer and closer. Um, um, Eusebius kind of describes the effect when he says, The whole of human race once lay buried in the gloomy night and depths of darkness. But Christ dissolved the knotty, entangled bonds of our iniquity by the rays of his light. So again, what I'm trying to tell you, these Christian churches are not just spaces. They are descriptions of Christ. Christ who describes himself as light Christ who describes himself as the way. And the building actually expresses that so that you stand and become part of that body of Christ, the light and the way. Um, this image I passed over before is by a man named Galliardi. It shows the church in the Renaissance era. It was already rebuilt by after fire, earthquake, and some Roman infighting. Surprise, surprise. Um, but we know the nave was trabeated. This just gives you a little bit of a sense of what it originally looked like, the wooden beams on the roof. The aisles had springing arches, which gave a lightness to the space. The floors had an apricot Numidian marble, which glowed in the light of the clear story. Um, the outer aisles had green columns from Greece. And the nave was held up by large columns recouped from other monuments. The walls were covered with inlaid marbles. And Bible stories, perhaps in mosaic, led the faithful through the stories of salvation to Christ's salvific sacrifice on the altar. First Christian architects composed spaces that that imitate and intimate intimate the universe in a transcendent and symbolic terms. It was a very creative style, in sharp contrast to the clouded and uncertain aspects of the world they lived in. The entire assembly hall of the Christian church was subordinated to the place of the altar. So all the progression, all the light, all the decoration, where are you going? You're going to the altar where the living presence of Christ would come. Here, too, um, the Christians had to adapt the synagogue's Torah shrine into the place of the Eucharistic sacrifice. The altar raised on the apse drew the faithful along a path do a faithful path and recollection of man's encounters with God on mountains. So you're, you're, you, eventually towards the end, you rise up to a raised altar, like, like you do when you encounter God on Sinai and Tabor, on Tabor and, and Calvary. The altar was always the most decorated part in these early Christian churches. The Liber Pontificalis tells us of the fastigium, which was a precious canopy. And so this kind of strange picture, because it's gone, we don't have it anymore, and there are not very many buildings that have it. But if you look at that sort of arch, and you look at the center, you see is a kind of a strange secondary arch. It looks like they built a triumphal arch right in the middle of the church. This was kind of, it's a very kind of, this is, um, this gives you an idea of what they, this is one thing that's apparently a fastidium which has been excavated. So this is like a strange little, like a frontal or a frame. And so the fastidium in St. John Lateran was dedicated, was decorated with bronze columns and it was, it was decorated with 2025 pounds of beaten silver donated by Constantine the dazzling luminosity helped reinforce among the faithful the presence of the lord and 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 made the universe in their midst the lavish interior earned the basilica the name the, the name of the basilica aurea which has a very star very very distressing recollection of the domus aurea of nero but it was called the golden basilica Uh, The luminosity and lightness of the structures allowed the physical world to fall away from the faithful who could find themselves out of the realm of space and time before God. If Christ's kingdom was not of this world, St. John Lateran was the closest that one would come to seeing it or being able to imagine it on Earth. But its temporal splendor made it an easy target for predators. It was sacked by the Goths in 410, and the fastigium was immediately replaced. But after the sack in 451, it was not. The sacks in 471, in 1084, and 1527, and a couple other in between uh, left virtually nothing of Constantine's treasures yet, yet, the resilience of the church has become its greatest, its greatest characteristic. The Lateran has been crumbled by two earthquakes, devastated by attacks and fires, and it always returns. Like the church itself, which has seen good times and bad teams, bad times, but it continues militant towards the church, triumphant. The Lateran, in its crazy mishmash of decorations, celebrates the church, its scars, its journey, its troubles, its 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 constant movement forward. And so in conclusion. Let's bring out the idea of triumph. The Church of Christ the Savior was not unlike the basic Roman victory temple, built by a victorious general still seen on the porch, hold on a second I'm out of my, out of my mental order um, The um, this, still seen on the porch, it was not welcomed in the center like the other Roman victory temples to pagan gods, but left in the outskirts on private land and yet it was gifted with spolia ultima from its very, op- very, very origins. Spolia ultima were the finest things from the fallen enemy given to the god of the victory. Christ had saved Constantine on the Milvian Bridge and not only did Constantine legalize his cult and build his church and favor his people, but he also brought spolia ottima to the church. So the gilt columns today on the tabernacle altar were taken from another Roman structure and given to adorn the church of the savior. Over the years, many other objects have been added, including the doors of the old Senate House of the Curia, dedicated by Alexander the Seventh in 1660. And even in triumph, the Christians distinguish themselves. The ornament and victorious spirit that pervades St. John Lateran has nothing to do with Constantine's battle with his brother-in-law. But it celebrates the astonishing victory of Christianity in earning recognition from the empire. Again, it's a unique victory, not of violence, but of love. The trophy statues and ornaments play homage to the only casualties of the 300-year battle to make Rome Christian. The only casualties were, of course, the martyrs, who gave up everything in witness to Christ, who craved to see but did not see. This is from Ravenna, but I love this image in Ravenna, and the in the church that you, you have along the sides. The men and the women carrying their martyrs' crowns. So this church is built in the in the in the sixth century, and you see this long line of the martyrs working their way towards the altar. And a reminder of all of these people who threw themselves against the Roman machine for all these years until they finally convinced the Romans. Saint John Lateran is the illustration of the Christian struggle. It's unique faith in its almighty god admonishes the faithful in the words of Luke 10:24 that blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see thank you